Philippians, Jesus Christ, our joy. First, of course, we look at the flight characteristics, the facts, the landmarks, the gospel, the history, and the uh, travel tips. So the facts first, Paul is identified as the author of Philippians, along with his like-minded friend, Timothy. Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison in Rome, awaiting the outcome of his trial. I will talk briefly about some of the other views uh, as to where his imprisonment took place, but it's generally believed that it was the imprisonment in Rome. He refers to palace guards and those of Caesar's household, so that's two of the reasons why we think it was the Roman imprisonment. Timothy, a fellow Christian and constant companion of Paul's, tended to Paul during this time and probably delivered this letter to the Philippian church. Philippians is one of Paul's four prison letters. He wrote these letters while imprisoned in Rome between AD 60 and 62. The other three, the other three prison letters besides Philippians, we've already covered we covered Ephesians and Colossians and the short epistle of Philemon. So these are the four that, that Paul wrote while he was in prison in Rome. The landmarks is uh, nicknamed the epistle of joy. Philippians contains a message of long suffering and joy in the face of persecution and hardship written during one of Paul's stays in prison. Despite his trials, Paul rejoiced over the church in Philippi and encouraged them to live in unity and humility. The church in Philippi might never have been founded and established if not for a vision that Paul that brought Paul to Macedonia. He was in, in Turkey in, in Asia Minor and he had this vision that said, come over to Macedonia and help us. So that's what led to the founding of, of the church in Philippi. His extremely personal letter to the Philippians showcases his special affection for this caring and generous church. Paul expressed his love for the people there, as well as his concern that they might drift away from all they had been taught. What's remarkable is Paul's personal expression of joy in spite of his imprisonment. The word joy appears five times in the book and the word rejoice, the verb, occurs 11 times. So even though Paul was writing this from prison, this is an epistle of joy. Paul's main concern was that the gospel was preached, no matter what happened to him. He showed an overwhelming devotion to Christ as he preached unity, humility, and dependency to the Bolivian church exhorting them to have joy in both their suffering and service to Christ. He also encouraged them to pursue for themselves the mind of Christ, the knowledge of Christ, and the peace of Christ. In closing, he reminded the Philippians of their joyous hope in Christ. The itinerary, the outline of the book. In chapter one, we see the marvel of the Christian life love. In chapter two, we see the model of the Christian life, Christ. In chapter three, the march of the Christian life, forward. 
we are constantly moving forward. And then finally in chapter four, the marks of the Christian life, peace and joy. The gospel, Jesus Christ is of course the perfect model of the Christian life. In Philippians, Paul touched on one of the most remarkable aspects of Jesus' character, his humility and lowliness. No human being sets out to be humble and low, lowly. To most of us, uh, that's equivalent to feeling at life. We're constantly trying to make something of ourselves, climbing up higher on the ladder of life instead of stooping down lower. But that's a worldly way of living. Anyone can do that, and most everybody does that. Jesus did the opposite. He was every bit as much God as the Father, but he gave it up to come to earth and serve mankind. Paul essentially gave us a backstage look at the incarnation and what Jesus went through in becoming a man. In Philippians 2.7, the Greek word that describes how he made himself of no reputation is kanao. It means he emptied himself when he became human. Not of being God, but of being of the prerogatives of God, the rights that are his because he is God. You might say Jesus gave up his benefits as God. The glory he shared with the Father, angels praising him at every moment, and the intimate company of the Father and the Spirit. Jesus also gave up his independent authority. While he was on earth, he submitted to the will of the Father. I always do those things that please him. As Jesus prayed at Gethsemane, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When Jesus' job on earth was done, God restored him to glory and gave him the name which is above every name. But he left quite an example for believers to follow. As his people, we are to humble ourselves like Jesus did, pouring ourselves out, casting aside what we think we deserve, want, or need, and being filled instead with the Spirit of God. In Philippians 2, Paul was basically saying, when I tell you to be humble and love and serve one another, here's your model, Jesus himself. You couldn't ask for a better one. The history, the city of Philippi in Macedonia was the gateway between Asia and Europe, named after Philip II of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. The city was officially made a Roman colony in 42 BC. And I'll talk uh, a little bit later about the implications of that, what that means for Philippi. It was made a colony in 42 BC after Mark Anthony and Octavian defeated Julius Caesar's assassins, Brutus and Cassius, in a battle near the city. Paul and his first two Philippian converts to Christianity, Lydia, Remember her, the, the seller of purple? And the city jailer, read about him in Acts 16. They founded the church there during Paul's second missionary journey, AD 50 through 53. It was the first church established in Europe. Here's a map of the Philippi region. And you can see in the lower right corner, 
off to the right there is Asia Minor today, Turkey. And then to the left there where the red box is, that's where Greece is located. And you can see up above uh, the inset there. And the red pin shows us where Philippi is located. And there's a more close-up view of the location of Philippi. The travel tips, the implications and applications. Make plans, but be ready for God to change them and trust him to know what's best for you when he does. Paul didn't originally plan to go to Philippi. He first traveled there because it was the only option the Holy Spirit gave him through a vision in Acts 16. But Paul was grateful because God furthered the gospel through his trials and detours. Enjoy being in the family business. Paul's joy and thankfulness were directly proportional to the growth of God's work. If you're a Christian, you're part of that family business, which means you should get involved in the global rescue operation God is overseeing. For reasons that we won't fully grasp this side of eternity, God has chosen to use people as agents to accomplish his work and his will, which is the salvation of all who come to him through Jesus Christ. Humility is the least natural and most important of all virtues. Selfish ambition is at the heart of fallen humanity, as reflected in our values and culture. But Paul called all believers to be like Jesus, stooping lower and lower in humility rather than climbing higher and higher on the social ladder. You're never more like Satan than when you're selfish, and never more like Jesus than when you serve. When you're effective for Christ, Satan will target you. The Philippian church was being threatened with division because two women, possible founders of the church, Euodia and Syntyche, but influential members of the fellowship nonetheless. They had given Satan a foothold, not just in their hearts, but in the life of the church as a whole. Paul knew that if they followed Christ's example of humility, they could resolve their issues and keep the church safe too. Your theology originates from one of two places, self-interest or the interests of others. Think of these two approaches as two basins of water. The first is Pilate's basin. He washed his hands of the responsibility for Jesus' crucifixion in order to protect his own political agenda. But Jesus filled a basin with water the night he was betrayed and lovingly stooped to wash the feet of his disciples, former fishermen, tax collectors, political zealots, and even a traitor, modeling the others-oriented nature of his ministry. So which basin will you choose? We can contrast Philippians with a couple of the other prison epistles. One of them is Ephesians. So contrasting, comparing and contrasting uh, Philippians with Ephesians. In uh, Ephesians, where uh, 
presented as in the heavenlies. In Philippians, we're back to earth. In Ephesians, where the head is in the clouds. In Philippians, the feet is on the earth. In other words, Ephesians emphasizes the, the fact that we are positionally with Christ in heaven. But Philippians deals more with uh, our earthly responsibilities. So Ephesians is talking about exaltation on the mountain, and Philippians is talking about exaltation, joy, in the valley. And then we can contrast Philippians with another present epistle, Colossians. Colossians talks about the pleroma and the fullness. But in Philippians, we read about the kanao, the emptying of Christ. Colossians deals with Christian knowing. Philippians deals more with Christian living. Philippians was written for several purposes. To encourage the readers to rejoice always in the Lord in every circumstance. To relate Paul's circumstances to them so as to ease their anxiety about him. Paul knew that they were concerned about his well-being, so he reassured them that even though he was in prison, God was with him and providing for him. To thank them for their many gifts to him, and the most recent one by way of Epaphroditus. Philippi, the Church of Philippi had been a very generous church, eager to support the work that Paul was doing. Another purpose was to warn them of the Judaizers. He doesn't spend nearly as much time on that particular issue as he does in some of his other epistles. To rebuke the perfectionists, to rebuff the essentialist and materialist, to exhort them to harmony in Christ. And I mentioned that before. He's, he's talking to these two women who are prominent in the church, Yodia and Syntyche, and encouraging them to, to work in harmony not to let personal squabbles interfere. The central theme of this letter is exaltation or joy in Christ. The key verse, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Chapter 4, verse 4. Old Testament citations, well, since the letter was written to a largely Gentile audience, there are no direct quotations from the Old Testament in Philippians. However, the teaching is dependent on an Old Testament background. You can see, for example, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. One important allusion to the Old Testament is found in chapter 2, verse 10, where it affirms that every knee will one day bow to Christ as Lord, this is derived from Isaiah 45:23, So it doesn't specifically quote that verse, but this is an allusion to it. Christ-centered nature. Each chapter centers on the person of Christ, who is our life, 
in chapter one, our example, chapter two, our goal in chapter three, and our strength in chapter four. As such, it is a handbook on Christian experience. The church organization. The church at Philippi was an organized church of bishops and deacons. Bishops are the Greek equivalent of elders who were ordained in every church. These uh, three terms of bishops and elders and pastors are used interchangeably in the New Testament. So this idea of a, of a hierarchy uh, comes along later in, in church history. It's not certainly not found in the, in the New Testament church because all, all of those terms, bishop and, and uh, pastor and elder, they're all used interchangeably. So there aren't some uh, pastors who are subservient to other pastors, you know, other special super duper bishops as, as came along later in, in church history. And then deacons were assistants to the elders, taking the material tasks from their hands so the elders or, or bishops or pastors could concentrate on the word of God and prayer. Other characteristics. The church at Philippi was the first church in Europe, as I mentioned, the forefather of Western Christianity. It was largely a Gentile church, one in which women were prominent. Right, so I mentioned Lydia and Euodia uh, and Syntyche and generously abounded, generosity abounded. The Church of Philippi was a very generous giving church. Some see an early Christological hymn and or creed in Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11. I'll talk more about that later. Uh, some think that, that uh, Paul was, was quoting from this, from this hymn or this creed when he penned those verses. It was warmly, a warmly personal letter, as indicated by the, by the use of the word I, some 64 times I is used in this epistle. It's a very personal letter by Paul. So now we'll look at some of the things that we can see in the, in the text of the epistle to the Philippians. From beatings to imprisonment, Paul had endured much suffering for the cause of Christ. These trials had taught Paul to be content in all circumstances, an ability that Paul encouraged the Philippians to cultivate. In fact, his letter to the Philippians is a testimony to this attitude. Even though he was in prison, facing an uncertain future, Paul wrote this thank you letter to the Philippians a letter that expresses Paul's abundant joy in what God was accomplishing through him. The most prominent theme of the epistle to the Philippians, as I've mentioned many times, is joy, specifically the joy of serving Jesus. The general tone of the letter reflects Paul's gratitude toward the Philippians and his joy in God. This may seem strange because Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison. Paul, however, had the ability to recognize opportunities for sharing the gospel, even in apparent setbacks. This was the origin of Paul's joy. He saw God working through the difficult situations he faced. Another theme of Paul's letter 
partnership in the gospel. Paul uses the Greek word koinonia in this letter in various ways. Sometimes it's translated as fellowship, other times partakers and shared. All of these passages highlight the Philippians' active involvement in Paul's own ministry. By supporting Paul, the Philippians had become partners with him to further the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul illustrates this concept of partnering or fellowship with the lives of Jesus Christ, chapter 2, Timothy, also in chapter 2, Epaphroditus in chapter 2, and then Euodia and Syntyche in chapter 4. So he uses these as illustrations of this partnering or fellowship of laboring together in the gospel. Since the Philippian Christians already possessed great joy and had demonstrated their partnership in sharing the gospel, Paul took the opportunity to identify a few weak areas that could be improved in chapter four. For example, uh, fellowship has two components, love and discernment. The Philippians had expressed the former but were lacking in the latter. Thus, Paul exhorted the Philippians to grow in knowledge and discernment, words that in the Greek refer to a relational understanding. In other words, the Greek word for knowledge focuses on a person-to-God relationship, whereas the Greek word for discernment points to a person-to-person -person relationship. Paul wanted the Philippians not only to abound in love, but also to experience more of God so that they could grow into a mature understanding of his ways. All of this shows that Paul had more than one purpose in, for his letter to the Philippians. Today's readers will continue to find wonderful passages of encouragement in this short, joyful letter. Situations such as bickering among church members, living in this evil world, giving to missionaries, and finding contentment are still current issues for today's Christians. In this letter, Paul provides God's wisdom and encouragement. But most importantly, he holds up Jesus' life as the model for believers. Uh, to determine when Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians requires identifying the location from which he wrote. He says that he was in prison, but to which imprisonment was Paul referring? The answer must be guided by three factors. Evidence of Paul's imprisonment in a given city, whether the Praetorian guard was in that city, because in his prison epistles, Paul mentions the Praetorian guard, this unit of the, of the Roman military, and the distance of that city from Philippi, which has to allow for several trips between the two cities. The city from which he was writing in prison and Philippi. Some speculate that Paul was writing from Corinth when they date the letter around AD 50. Others point to the city of Ephesus and the date of AD 53 through 55. Still others advocate Caesarea as the location from which Paul wrote in about AD 58 to 69. But most scholars have favored Rome about AD 60 through 62 as the city from which Paul wrote this epistle. Paul's imprisonment in Rome is well established in scripture 
can read all about it in Acts chapter 28. Because of his situation, because his situation allowed him freedom to preach the gospel while he was in prison, he undoubtedly felt confident that his release from prison was imminent. And of course, that was indeed the case. He was eventually released from that imprisonment. His second imprisonment in Rome didn't go so well. That it ended in his martyrdom, not in his release. But it was during this first imprisonment that he wrote the epistle to the Philippians and the other prison epistles as well. While on his second missionary journey, and in response to a vision from God, Paul left Troas in the province of Asia, part of present-day Turkey, and traveled to Macedonia in present-day Greece to establish the first church in Europe, the church in the city of Philippi. I mentioned this before, that Philippi had become a Roman colony. What does that mean? Well, because Philippi had been granted the status of a Roman colony, this meant that its citizens could purchase own or transfer property. They also had the privilege of filing civil lawsuits in Roman courts and were exempted from paying both poll and land taxes. Their elevated status and wealth gave them not only confidence, but a pride that bordered on arrogance. Philippians closely follows the normal form of Paul's letters. First, there is an identification of the author and the readers. Then secondly, there's a pronouncement of God's grace and peace. Third, there's thanks is offered to God because of the readers. Fourth, the body of the letter, the main bulk of the letter. Five, a personal desire to see the readers or to send someone to them. Uh, greetings to the readers from those with Paul. And then a statement of blessing, which serves as the conclusion of the letter. The only variation from this basic pattern is that Paul places the desire to send section in the body of the letter. Paul does this in order to illustrate his point concerning humble service with the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus. So because he's giving those examples of humble service, he incorporates that, that part of the, of the letter, the desire to send section in the, the main body of the letter. Although the letter follows Paul's normal pattern, some have, have suggested that the letter is actually three letters combined into one. They do so on the basis of Paul's use of the Greek words for finally in chapter three, verse one, and also in chapter four, verse eight. So because Paul uses that word finally in these two earlier sections, some think that there are actually three sections to the letter that they were just finally incorporated into one letter. They argue that those words signal actual conclusions at those two points, thus indicating that Philippians is actually three different letters. Yet the Greek words for finally can function as a, a transitional phrase, as they do in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, in essence meaning besides or furthermore. So it's not necessarily the case that the use of the words for finally means that it was a three-part letter that was eventually incorporated into one. 
there's there are good indications that it really was one just one letter one unified letter from the beginning the strongest evidence for the unity of Philippians is a Greek manuscript from around AD 200 that includes all three sections of the letter 1 1 through 230 3 1 through 4 7 4 8 through 23 and includes all three of those sections as they're called in one letter but whether Philippians is a unity or a compilation of several letters, it contains timeless truths from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Some of the questions that are raised in the book of Philippians, what, do we, what does it mean when it talks about Christ being emptied of, of deity? In Philippians chapter two, verses five through seven, if Christ emptied himself, of deity while on the earth, how could he be God? Paul seems to say that Jesus emptied himself of his deity or equality with God, becoming a man. But elsewhere, Jesus claimed to be God on earth. How could Jesus be God while on earth if he laid aside his deity? He laid his deity aside to become a man. <coughs> Jesus did not cease being God while on earth. Rather, in addition to being God, he also became man. His incarnation was not the subtraction of deity, but the addition of humanity. Several things in this text support this position. First, it does not say Christ gave up or emptied himself of his deity, but merely of his rights as deity, assuming the form of a servant, as an example for us. Second, verse 6 declares that he was in the form of God, or in the very nature of God. Just as the form of a servant is a servant by nature, so the form of God is God by nature. Third, this very passage declares that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. That's a citation from Isaiah 45, 23, as I mentioned earlier that refers to Yahweh, a name used exclusively for God. So if we're going to take that verse from the Old Testament, a verse that refers to Yahweh, to God, and apply it to Jesus, that indicates that Jesus is Yahweh, Jesus is God. Um, I wanted, wanted to spend a few minutes just talking about the structure and the meaning of that, of that passage chapter 2 verses 6 through 11 and we can see when we examine the passage that it is in the form of the famous chiastic structure that we become quite familiar with here at gospel of grace the abc uh, c prime b prime a prime so in other words it works its way in and then works its way back out and the two um, sections the two sections of the, of the chiastic structure uh, form a mirror image. So in A, we see who existing in the form of God did not consider being equal with God something to be taken advantage of. B, but emptied himself by having taken the form of, of a slave. C, having come to be in the likeness of human beings. And then that's the, the hinge point. We begin to work our way back out again. C prime, and having been found as a human being in constitution, 
B prime, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the extent of death, even death on a cross. And then finally, A prime, therefore also God has highly exalted him and granted him the name above every name, that in Jesus, in Jesus' name, should bow every knee of heavenly and earthly and subterranean beings and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord with the glory of God the Father. So A and A prime refer to Christ's pre-earthly existence and his post-earthly existence respectively. In other words, his existence before he became a man in the incarnation and then his post-earthly existence when he was exalted once again. B and B prime refer synonymously to Christ's death on a cross, a slave's kind of death. C and C prime refer to Christ's incarnation, which enabled his self-emptying, self-humbling in death. The greater length of A prime puts emphasis on Christ's exaltation. Jesus' name is probably not the name which is, is Jesus, but the name which he has, that is, Lord. He's the Lord, the one before whom every knee will bow. Are Christians perfect? Philippians 3.15, are Christians perfect or still on the way to perfection? In this verse, Paul speaks to as many as be perfect, to act as he did, he, he encourages people, those who are perfect, as those who will be perfect, those who are perfect, to act as he acts. But only three verses earlier, he claimed that he was not already perfect, that he was still pressing on to attain perfection. So which statement should we believe? Here is a good example of how this same word can be used with different senses. This is not uncommon in languages as the English word board illustrates. So take this sentence, for example. The board members took a stroll on the boardwalk and then stopped at the desk to inquire about room and board. It is obvious that the same word board is being used here in three different senses. Likewise, Paul uses the word perfect in different senses. Some believers are perfect in the sense of being mature or complete, but no believer this side of death is perfect in the sense of having fully arrived or having reached the ultimate goal. This comes, as Paul indicated, only at the resurrection from the dead. So now we'll, we'll take a look at the contribution of the epistle to the Philippians. Many of Paul's letters were called forth by the need to set things right in a given church, or to oppose false teaching, or to correct lax practice. But Philippians is that comparatively, comparative rarity, a, a letter to a church of Paul's own foundation with which he is on the whole well pleased. There is something wholesome and edifying in the quiet thanksgiving Paul sends to the church at Philippi, in Philippi. As he recalls their support of him and his ministry, something gently probing about his instructions on giving and receiving, not least 
how he reflects or descends from the expectations of his surrounding culture. This letter reveals something of the apostle's satisfaction when his converts made progress in the faith. He does oppose false teaching here as elsewhere, but the main thrust of the letter lies elsewhere. As he is writing, he makes some comments on the opponents he and the Philippian church faced, but for the most part, he is taken up with more enjoyable things. Outstanding, of course, is the, the hymn in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, which I've talked about before. Although controversy surrounds it, whether it was existed earlier or whether it was incorporated by Paul into his epistle or whether it was original at that time, we're not sure about that. But this passage brings readers a clear message about the greatness of Christ and his condescension in taking a lowly place to bring salvation. Paul thought of Christ as one who was in very nature God, who took the lowest place and died on the cross to bring salvation. Now he is exalted to the highest possible place, and Paul looks forward to the time when every knee will bow to him and every tongue confess him as Lord. As Christ was vindicated, so also his people shall be, and that constitutes powerful incentive to press on. Moreover, on any reading, this hymn is early, at least as early as Philippians and maybe earlier. So it constitutes a powerful evidence for the confession of a high Christology at a very early date in the church's life. So some people would claim that the early church uh, didn't have this high Christology, but as we read Philippians, we, we see that this high Christology, as we call it, uh, is a product of very early teaching within the church. It isn't just something that came along later. The letter is also an encouragement to Christians who find others preaching the gospel in ways they do not like. It is of permanent value to us, to us all to have, laid it, have it laid down so firmly that what matters is that the gospel be preached. Paul rejoices in this. And indeed, the note of joy is sounded throughout this letter, that Christians are rejoicing people is important. So sometimes we are disappointed in evangelists who uh, may do things or say things that, that uh, we don't think are scriptural, which are not scriptural, which are rightfully criticized. But we, what we find is that even in the failures of man, God is still able to work his purposes. So even when the, uh, the message is distorted and isn't quite right and there's some bad theology, even through that, God is actually able to bring people to salvation. Um, I've known many people through the years, and I'm sure you have too, who uh, were involved in, in movements or cults or went through a lot of bad theology, but eventually they were led to genuine Christianity. And we can praise God for that. Even though the, the preachers or the ministries that maybe initially caused them to, to think about the, the big issues of life and, and to ponder who Jesus is and 
what his role is in our salvation. Eventually, God is able to bring all of those he is calling to his precious truth. Also significant is what Paul calls partnership in the gospel. Throughout the letter, there is a harmony between writer and readers and a series of glimpses of what it is to work together in the cause of Christ. Paul encourages his friends, assures them of his affection for them, teaches them lessons from his own circumstances, and adds to their knowledge of the Christian way. He prays for them, warns them about false teaching, exhorts them to steadfastness in the Christian life, and sends Timothy to them. In the nature of case, we do not learn as much of what Philippians contributed to the relationship, but it is clear that they had a concern and affection for Paul, that they sent one of their number to look after him when he was in trouble, that they sent him gifts at a time when no other church helped him, and that they obeyed his directions. It is a beautiful picture of Christian harmony. The epistle has a notable section in which Paul emphasizes the importance of concentrating on the essentials over against confidence in the flesh. He stresses the place of the cross and the resurrection and Christian salvation. The suffering of the Christian fits in with this. Paul draws attention to the way the gospel is advanced through his own sufferings. And he sees the sufferings of, of the Philippians as they experience the same struggle as he, as God's gift to them. The important thing is the service of Christ. Then at the end of the letter, he records his magnificent assurance that my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And that concludes our study on Philippians. We'll conclude with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we have seen that even in the midst of trying circumstances and difficult circumstances, your servant Paul was able to be filled with joy and to impart that joy to the church at Philippi. We ask that you will be with us and even in the midst of the difficult circumstances and the trials that we may face, that we will still be filled with joy, joy in what Christ has done on our behalf and what he will yet do, what he's doing right now, and how he will carry us through to the ultimate joy of your kingdom. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>